North-South Connection Podcast Network. Happy New Year, number one. Number two, welcome back to the year that was. And here we are with episode 35, and we are hitting the second best WWF year of all time, 1997. And man, I'll be honest, it feels like a billion years since I have done these, and it has. So listen, if you stuck by this project and are listening now, I want to just apologize for letting this drop for so long. Life just gets in the way sometimes. Um, for those of you who don't really know me too well, I, I am a small business owner and COVID has caused uh, difficulties, let's say, uh, which is why a lot of our shows are in a state of flux right now, like this one. TNA never dies. Like when you don't hear about it, it's totally my fault. JT and Jenny are just pros and I'm just trying to balance scheduling, right? And it's my schedule that's in a constant state of flux and it's making completing projects like this challenging. So, and I, but I'm not going to blame it all on that. I'll be honest. I take a lot of pride in this show and in all the shows that we do. And I, I went through a period where I was keeping it up every two weeks, I was so worried that I was going to start saying the same things over and over again. And the, the response I always get with the show, with anybody who writes me, is always so positive. And so I, I just I just didn't want to let anybody down. I didn't, especially with the, the best ones. And it really fucked with my head for a bit. Anyways, all that to say, the continued support on this show, just reaching out and saying, hey, when's it coming back? Man, you can't, I can't tell you how much that motivated me to get it done, and it, it, it really made the project feel worth it, so thank you. So since it's been a long time, um, let's just drop what the list is so far, you know? Uh, we started this back in early 2020 with the worst pay-per-view year of all time, which was 1995, right? Number 35, 2010, then 93, 99, 2006, 86, and at number 30, 2003. So really the worst of the worst there. Uh, then at 29, we had 2004, 28, 19, uh, 2019, 26, 2007, 25, 1985, 24, 2013, 23, 2009, 22, 2012, 21, 2014, and the 20th best year of all time, 2005. And then sneaking it at 19 was 2020, which I think is a little bit underrated. At, at 18, 2008, 17, 1992. With 1997. So, this year feels like it might be the best overall year in wrestling history. Between WWF, WCW, and ECW, it was such an incredible time to be a fan. The storytelling was next level, and everyone was just hitting on all cylinders. It was in the height of, height of like real wrestling competition, right? And in 1998, WWF finally defeats WCW in the ratings war. I think without the incredible foundation of 1997... This wouldn't have even been possible. Wrestling was getting cool again. 
and the pioneers of 1997 deserve all the credit in the world, even that no good Bret Hart. Let's hear from a couple of you. James Gruenberg. James says, 1997 is the last baby step for the WWE with Vince McMahon changing the scenery and giving attitude a new meaning, starting with the frustrating, <laughs> starting with frustrating isn't the damn word for it. This is bullshit promo from Bret Hart. DX promos with Sergeant Slaughter and Hilar are hilarious, allowing fans to see the funny side of Triple H and Shawn Michaels. That's true. I would agree with all of that, James. These are all hugely influential things. I can't have one of these episodes without hearing from my man Rocco Martone. So he's going to give away who number one is, but if you've been paying attention, you know what it is. In 1987 and 1997, I was 10 and 20 years old, respectively. I was 7 and 17, my friend. I feel like I was the exact right age for both of these years were geared towards uh, me. And I believe I was the perfect target audience for each of these legendary times in wrestling. I'll start with 1997, which I believe is the second best year. Rocco, you nailed it. I was 20 and living every minute of life as if it was my last. <laughs> was there any hero better to a young kid uh, with a fuck the world attitude than Stone Cold? I had just gotten back into wrestling this year and I spotted a dude I knew walking around with an issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. It's funny. That's how I got back into Rocco. Back to Rocco. I had not held one since I left wrestling around five years earlier. I was totally engulfed with nostalgia. He caught me up on what was going on in modern wrestling and I had to check out all the crazy stuff he was telling me about. Heel Hulk Hogan? One of the rockers is a top guy? Mean Gene? No longer in the WWF? Holy shit. I had to check this out. I was totally hooked from the start. Raw was, like, was nothing like the syndicated shows I had grown up with and I loved it. Speaking of Stone Cold... This amazing project, well, come on now, thank you, Rocco. This amazing project has constantly exposed how amazing Randy Savage was and why he is the best of all time. I, however, feel like Stone Cold directly connected to the audience like no other performer before or since. I'll read more. Uh, his eyes pierced through the screen right into the viewer in a way that no guy had before. Savage was just as intense, and maybe it was the sunglasses or my age, but Stone Cold's blue eyes just cut through like the TV like no other. I, I agree with that. Uh, awesome play to the back of the room, just like theater and traditional wrestling, but with cutting promos in the ring directly into the camera a foot away from his face. He was able to connect with the audience in a traditional television one shot. I agree 100%. Something maybe only Rock, Cena, and possibly Vince have done so well. I think Austin and Savage are a really interesting comparison. And uh, I don't know if you guys know, but the, the Place to Be Nation is doing a stretch project in... 2022 and it's a return to form of the greatest wwe wrestler of all time five years later a g wwe five years later so there's going to be an interesting debate going forward um yeah and i think savage and austin is a is a closer comparison than a lot of people want it's such a shame they never had a feud because that would have been off the charts in terms of intensity but i love the point you make about how he's staring right into the camera uh, to do these promos and i think it just gave you a sense of Man, you believed what this guy was saying. You believed that he was going to bring a condom to the ring. He wasn't going to bring a condom to the ring to fight Bret Hart, right? He was going to just beat the hell out of him until he submitted. Like, you just believed everything Austin said because he felt like he was speaking to you. And he was speaking to you in a way that didn't feel like a promo. He was talking to you. He wasn't speaking at you, um, which ties into your thing. Aaron, do you ever consider this to be acting or something else entirely? Have you ever used wrestling to teach someone about theater? Uh, I wish I could use it. But here's the thing. 
theater people are fucking snobs. Like, they are real snobs about everything. They are snobs to uh, actual theater. So the first show I ever really, well, I wrote a show, but the second show I ever wrote uh, was Cobra the Musical, which was a G.I. Joe musical, right? It's about the villains from Cobra putting on Hamlet to raise money. Uh, they needed money because they lose every battle, so they put on Hamlet. And then Cobra Commander casts himself as Hamlet. He casts Serpentor as Laertes, and his whole plan is that he's going to kill La- Serpentor for real in the play. Um, this whole charade is just to kill Serpentor. All that to be said, this was a, a show that was a crazy hit and was just kind of like rejected by the theater community as put on, it wasn't real theater. So you can't use things like wrestling to teach, which is a shame because I actually think it does have a lot to teach. It has a lot to teach about um, playing to the back of the room, but I think it also has a lot to teach about uh, pageantry and presentation. Like, you know, when a, when certain rest and a rest, Stone Cold, like you're talking about, is a great example. From the moment he steps on the on the ramp, you know everything about him. You know, b- based on how he moves, how he's moving his arms, how he's moving his head, how he's looking at, how he's using his eyes. And these are things that actors could definitely use. Is it acting? 1,000%. And I have long maintained, and this is a controversial position in the theater world, that professional wrestling is theater. And not only that, it is the most popular form of theater in the world. Because there is no other theater, and you have to kind of buy in that it's theater, but if there's, if there's no other theater in the world that could go places and sell 10,000 seats every single time. It doesn't exist. Um, so have I used wrestling? I've liked to, but it's, it's just not something that works. Uh, back to Rocco quickly on a side note, when my wife and I were introduced as bride and groom for the first time at our wedding, our walkout song was Stone Cold Themes. Nerves be damned. You cannot feel like anything but a total badass when the glass hits and the music plays. You're the best Rocco. The best. Okay. Some through lines and just Hawk Rocco. You're doing awesome on all the podcasts you're coming in. I, 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 you're just a joy to listen to. So thank you so much for those contributions. And thank you so much for contributing so much to this show. Through lines. Uh, Shades of Grey are really in full force uh, before Vince get, gets, gets up and gives that like, we don't want to talk about good guys and bad guys speech. It, it's already happening earlier in the year. I love 287. Every division on the show is somewhere tied into the main program. So it makes everything as a consequence feel important. Like it matters when Owen Hart fights Steve Austin because Owen Hart's part of the Hart Foundation. Hart Foundation is feuding with Austin. They're feuding with The Undertaker. They're feuding with Shawn Michaels. Everything's connected. And I, I think the writing is, is really tight for that. And I think Vince Russo deserves a lot of credit. As much shit as he gets, Vince Russo is the guy, or at least the, one of the very first guys who really tried to write for everybody. And also as a through line, um, Steve Austin is very, very good. So to get these rankings, uh, I rank every year in 12 categories and then, uh, you know, they're aggregated against each other and that's how 97 ended up second. The first category is matches. So matches based on star rating, right? And if 97 has a weak point, it's matches where it finished 28th out of 36, right? Average match star rating is 2.72. However, it has the, it has, it's tied for the most five-star matches with three. So it's like you have the the absolute peaks, but the undercard just isn't there yet. You know, that's where that's where it falls short in the match category. Say compared to a year like 2000, which has a bunch of those great. I think 2000 has three five-star matches also, but everything on the undercard is just so good that it kind of buoys it all. Thirty-five percent of the matches are good. 
29% are bad, and 36% are middling. So really, it's that 36% where it kind of drops off a bit. And But I mean, that makes sense. That's where you're, you're in the kind of area of like Mark Miro, uh, boxing guys, and you know, early Hunter Hearst Helmsley, that just the matches are just not really there. Um, but so I think this is where, and it's crazy, this is where 97 loses any chance of finishing this thing, right? And finishing first in this thing. And like, like I said, not that there aren't all-time classics. Shit, two of my top five matches are of all time are from 1997. And it's t- like I said, it's tied for the most three-star matches with three. And that's a ton for a calendar year. Only 97 2000 and 2018 can boast three five-star matches. Again, in my opinion. And I'm trying to be objective. When have you ever been objective? And 2018 really shouldn't even count as NXT was an entire promotion based around the idea of breaking Dave Meltzer's brain, right? So I don't know if that really counts. So you can really only compare it to 2000. All that to say, there is a lot of good. It's the rest. I think what ends up hurting it is that in many, in, in too many instances, it feels like there's someone good in the ring, but they're always stuck with someone who is dragging them down. Like Rocky Maivia is pretty good, but he's in there with Savio Vega. DOA, serviceable enough, I guess, but then they're in there with a team involving Savio Vega. Ahmed Johnson, screaming mess, right? But Savio Vega can't carry him in a gauntlet match. Man, Savio Vega really feels like a fucking problem here. I can't believe how heavily this guy was pushed from 1995 to 1998. But look, it's not just it's not just Savio, right? You can't put it all on him. And look, there's a lot of reasons to hate Savio Vega. The least of which is that he probably refers to Jesus as Jesus. And I'll be honest, I'm not even sure who that line is more disrespectful to in this in the grand scope of things. I do think too this project has shown me how awful a performer Al Al Snow was. But I mean, what do you want him to do with Tiger Ali Singh? See, this is what I mean by the middling. What's Al Snow doing against Tiger Ali Singh on a pay per view? Right? Because unless, like, what can you do with Tiger Ali Singh? What can anyone do with Tiger Ali Singh? Right? What can you do with that guy? Unless you're disposing of him in three or four different garbage bags, you're not doing the world any favors at all. There's also a ton of Farouk in the bottom of this year, which is a shame, all right? Because I like Farouk. And I guess when he was demoted from human being to gladiator to black supremacist, he lost like a huge chunk of his in ring prowess. I mean, he's in nearly a quarter of the bad matches this year. And the best thing he does all year is argue with the ref for 10 minutes after getting put out of the Survivor Series so he can hang around and cheat. What could he be arguing about? He was pinned clean. But then again, for everything that's bad this year, we have the rise of Steve Austin and the excellence of Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker. These were the big four this year, and they did an incredible job not only of providing in-ring magic, but carrying the character load for the year. Without these four, this this probably finishes last, right? Uh, in terms of years. And Sting, to this day, probably gets treated like the superstar that he was. So, uh, let's deal... So, as you know, I always deal with the worst match of the year. And I always try to rewatch it, and I did again. So, the worst match of 1997 on WF pay-per-view from the WrestleMania... Psycho Sid versus The Undertaker. Imagine imagine how bad this match has to be for me to shit on Sid. All right, let's fire it up. So I turn it on, and I had to watch the promo. Sid screaming at Todd Pettengill. And within a second, he botches. He goes, uh, Wrestle WrestleMania is the biggest night event of the world. He just can't get it together. 
I, look, I, I just know if I was Todd Pettengill and Sid was calling me my friend instead of a fat, bald-headed little oaf, I'd feel very grateful. He's not scared of The Undertaker. And he is doing the voice modulation thing, which always makes me happy. And then we start to the entrances. How fucking long is this Undertaker entrance going to be? Just so you know, it's like about four minutes. And it's weird. I never really got the symbolism of Taker challenging at Mania 13 until I saw him standing there with a giant 13 over his head. So I guess subtlety is lost on me. Maybe that's why I don't connect with the theater community. Um, surprisingly, too, on Undertaker's entrance, the announcers lay back and say zero. It just makes it feel all the more special. They just go silent for him. It's hard to believe that like the dude on, uh, on commentary this night is the same dude screaming at Michael Cole to mention W-W-E eight times in 25 seconds. And only when the lights go on does Vince say a word. He pops for the lights like, like, like a child like seeing balloons for the first time. Oh! oh! He's just so pleased that the lights went on. And I love that Taker's wearing the gray gear again. Sean's on commentary. Sean's like, I got goosebumps for The Undertaker. Like, that didn't stop him from, like, trying to kill the man later in the year. Big boos for Sid. What the fuck is wrong with Chicago? Booing Sid. Were they all Pete Lothario fans? Also, Sid looks like the fucking man. Only a star with the stature of Sid, Justice, Psycho Sid, could be in the WWF and every time he's at WrestleMania be in the fucking main event. The men in the front row are fist bumping him. And as Sid's coming down, Ross is already apologizing for the match. Yeah, this won't be a technical masterpiece. And he's just already shitting on it. Vince then goes, Sid is the man. Is he man enough? No way Vince has not seen Sid's penis. No way. He knows everything about Sid's manhood. All right, so, so far... Like with the entrances and everything. I'm on board. Right? I guess the bell has to ring. The bell rings and here's Brett. And then Michaels gets a great line and he goes, geez, imagine Brett being resentful for not being in the main event or, or not being the man. I find that hard to believe. And then Brett gets the mic and he shits on Sean. He's like, you, you stupid phony little, you phony little faker. And then, so he's shitting on Shawn Michaels and Vince they cut to, they cut, I don't even know how to describe this. They cut to Sean at commentary and Vince has like completely mounted Sean from behind trying to keep him at the table. But Vince has no idea how to touch a human being. I swear, go back and look at where he puts his hands on Sean's shoulders. It's like he's got his fists. Like His hands aren't open or closed. They're in between and they're resting on Sean's shoulders. It's like when you take like, if you're a dude and you take a photo with like, a female celebrity and you put your arm around her but you don't know what to do with your hand like do you, do you caress her shoulder do you just do a fist because you, you don't want to offend her right you just don't know what to do with your hands look watching watching vince try to hold sean back also he had to scurry <laughs> he also had to like scurry behind jim ross to get there which is also funny a funny image because they're jammed up against the barrier anyway it's, it's just one of the most awkward things i've ever seen and then brett's like to undertaker your friendship with me is over Sean's like, oh no. <laughs> then he starts on Sid, but Sid fucking just has none of it. He punches him, like just as he gets the catchphrase out. Sid power bombs the shit out of him, grabs the mic and goes, You take your one and ass out of here. Sean is dying on commentary. I just remember loving this at 17. 
Brett getting beat up here is just awesome character stuff because it comes out and he's already hurt and he leaves worse. All right. Now they ring the bell and the match starts. Taker's manhandling Sid early, like really manhandling him, uh, which, I, which was a bit strange. Uh, and then it, Vince goes, it's been a long, hard row for Taker. I don't know what that means. Uh, Taker then hits Sid with a body slam and tries to pin him. This leads me to believe Undertaker has never watched a professional wrestling match. Then Sean says, you know, it's got to be different for both these guys to be in there and not be the biggest man in there. But if you think about that for one second, one of them is surely bigger than, and is therefore still the biggest. Two minutes in, Sid's throwing a bear hug. And Ross is trying to justify this fucking long-ass bear hug by saying, well, Sid doesn't want to make any mistakes. Then Sid lets go of the bear hug, pounds the back, and I'm like, okay, here we go. Nope, back in the bear hug. So we're back in the bear hug. But then Sid lets it go again, punches him in the back, and I'm like, here we go. Nope, back in the bear hug. I started to chuckle to myself imagining how angry the crowd would have been if Undertaker just passed out in the bear hug and lost. Taker then goes to the floor and we see the mess that the Nation of Domination and the LOD made earlier. It's just like, it looks like someone like had a, had like the ingredients of a cake explode everywhere all over the floor. I once made a cake on a guy in the back of a bus and it, it looked exactly like that. Sid's pounding Taker on the table and the ref is trying to stop him, but uh, there, Sid gives him a very stern, shut up! And Vince then justifies all the outside stuff, saying, well, Sid and Undertaker went to Gorilla Monsoon and asked for it to be no DQ. Look, Taker is so fucking pale here, too. Like, he might as well be dying of AIDS. He's so pale. The pounding on the back continues. Camel clutch uh, on the ring by Sid. Uh, Sheik is probably throwing furniture in the back and cursing out Hulk Hogan. Why on earth? Like, and Sid lets go of the camel clutch. Why on earth would anybody let go of it if you have it cinched in? Then Sid jumps from the second rope without shattering his leg. That's a plus. Taker fights back, and then Vince is like, wow, the Undertaker has very quick hands. Obviously, this is where they got the best pure striker from. Then Sid hits a great power slam, goes for the pin, gets two. Right away, tries to pin him again, two. And then you hear a very loud, God damn it! And Sid tries to pin him for the third time as he's screaming, God damn it. I love that spot. Sid's really dominated the midpoint of this match. Then they trade blows with a barrier between them, which sounded really way dirtier than I was meant to. Then, so then Sid, I don't even know how to describe this. Sid's weirdly positioned in the ring and Undertaker can't figure out which rope to bounce off of to elbow drop him. So he does like two or three. Now Sid gets a shitty chin lock. And then Sean goes on a rant about how he's objective, not like some people. <laughs> I guess the, the digs at Bret Hart are great and really working for me. Um, there's just so many rest holds in this match. One thing Sid sucks at, selling getting punched in the head. He just kind of stands there and like opens his mouth. Like it's like his chin is getting longer. You know what he looks like? He looks like Von Kaiser from Punch-Out when, when he does the honk, 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 honk. Like once you've hit him and he's waiting for you to punch him again. Anyway, I don't like it. Uh, there's also, I know never noticed, there's a guy in the fifth or sixth row on the hand, hard camera side. He's just sitting there with his fucking arms crossed in a rage. Like, he's kind of a bigger guy in an almost pink shirt. I can't unsee him now. He's in the front. He's in front of a girl in a red shirt. He's got a round head, glasses, center of the screen, hard camera, just left of the stairs. He's just so angry. I don't know what his problem is, but he's angry for a long time. 
Sid also has the laziest big boot of all time. Now both guys are knocked out. This match should be over. It's getting too long. The big problem with this match is the length. No reason not to do a sprint. Then Sid starts working the back again. Fuck, all this match needs is a nerve hold, and I'll go right over the edge. Flying clothesline from Sid, but then he just stands around waiting for Taker to get back up. Like, And it's a couple of times he does this, where he hits a big move, waits for him to get up, and then he climbs the second ropes, and like it jumps again. I'm sure this is where his leg was weakened, and it just stayed that way until 2000. Also, Sid is really dismissive of his own nose. Like, he wipes his nose with such disdain. I guess he's had a runny nose, but the way he wipes it, he's just angry at himself for producing, like, snot. Sid goes to the top. Taker sits up. Taker throws him across the ring. Big top row clothesline from Taker. Then Sid reverses the tombstone and nearly breaks Taker's neck. And this gets uh, um, <laughs> The Undertaker. One, two, he got him. No, he didn't from Vince. Brett comes back, levels Sid on the floor with a chair. And then Vince is like, Brett snapped. And Sean's like, no, he hasn't snapped. He's just bitter. And Vince goes, what a loser Brett has turned out to be. I, I feel like this is where the, the later decision was made. Big choke slam on Sid. Very close two count. Sid angle with the two counts. Then, then Sid reverses an Irish whip as though he wasn't just choke slammed. He goes for a big clothesline. Taker ducks. Then he awkwardly flips over him. They call it a flying clothesline. Sid's about to powerbomb him, and Brett comes back, and Sean lets out a very, oh, Jesus, <laughs> which I thought was so fucking funny. I bet he regrets it now. And then Sean's like, doesn't he ever get tired of getting beat up? <laughs> uh, then Sid beats on Brett, uh, but he gets choked on the top rope. Taker hits him with the tombstone and wins. I don't know. I like this way more when I watch it this time. I think it still sucks. I don't think it's as bad as the Truth Commission versus DOA match from the Survivor Series. But Taker wins the belt. So, I don't know. One star. The Brett stuff was cool and gave me a good pop. I, I enjoyed the Brett stuff. All right. Let's deal with the uh, top five matches of the year. But first, as always, our honorable mentions. Uh, that honorable mentions being anything that hit four stars. So, honorable mention number one. The great Sasuke versus Takamichinoku from Canadian Stampede. The Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels from Ground Zero. And Shawn Michaels versus Steve Austin from King of the Ring. So eight four-star-plus matches. The number five best match of the year. For me, The Undertaker versus Bret Hart SummerSlam for the WWF Championship. I'm at four and a half stars. I can't believe how much I love this one on rewatch. I think it starts better than almost any Bret Hart or Undertaker match ever does with a quick sneak attack. And you can talk a bit about how this match is slow, but everything both guys did just made so much sense. There also seems to be a lot more grunts and screams in this one than in any of their other matches put together. It's like they were both working extra hard to win. The beauty of the match, though, is how well and, and how well Taker, Brett, and guest referee Shawn Michaels all work together so seamlessly. It's like Shawn is right there when Taker turns around to frighten him. Like, no one's ever out of place. The match builds to a marvelous crescendo, and it's really helped by Shawn's nuances as a ref. The ending with the missed chair shot <laughs> is so sublime. The sheer perfection and timing involved in that missed chair shot is really incredible. I love Sean's reluctance to count the three count after he fucks up. And for all the heat that Sean gets for his work in the WrestleMania 28 held in the cell, it's easy to overlook how great he was in this one. I think all three guys killed it. It's kind of a forgotten classic. Number four, the Royal Rumble match. Four and three quarter stars. Like always, we'll talk about that one later. Number three, the 10-man tag from Canadian Stampede. Five stars. Hey, look, just one of the best main events of all time. One of the most unique environments they ever did. As a Canadian fan obsessed with Steve Austin, 
Uh, this was a rough night for me. Probably not as rough as Diana's, but whatever. Number two, The Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels, Bad Blood, first ever Hell in a Cell, five stars. Hugely important match, and in my mind, maybe the best comeuppance match of all time. Not the result, but just how the match went. Sean is incredible as a heel throughout 1997, but this is clearly his crowning moment. He sells like a maniac for Undertaker, and they always had this crazy, insane chemistry, which I you would never have expected. Taker beats the hell out of the heartbreak kid from pillar to post in this one. He knocks him off the cage. He just murders him. Then we get the debut of That's Gotta Be Kane, and Michaels pins him with one arm after the tombstone. Michaels is dead, dead, dead. The blade job is incredible. He lies in the ring for 15 minutes, needs to be carried out. This created a whole other match, right, too, that the company still grinds into this ground uh, to this day. But in this moment, it gave us an instant classic between two of the all-time greats. I have it as the fifth best match of all time, right? Both guys busted ass. Michaels looks 100% legitimate in there with a killer. I can't say enough good stuff about the Bad Blood Hell in a Cell, but the number one match of the year. Imagine that not winning number one. Fifth best match of all time, but number one match of the year. Obviously, Mark Merrill, Leaf Cast. No, it's Bret Hart versus Stone Cold Steve Austin. Submission match, WrestleMania 13. Five stars. I feel like if Meltzer had broken his scale earlier, this would be like a seven star, but whatever. And, you know, I kind of struggled with this because I like, what what more can I say about this one that hasn't already been said? It's widely considered to be the best match in company history, and it's been dissected by way brighter minds than me. It's nonstop action start to finish, a great bloody mess, and it makes Stone Cold Steve Austin. I think my favorite part, and maybe the most telling part of the match, is Brett gets the chair on Austin's ankle and goes to pilmanize him, and he climbs the ropes to like jump and really break his ankle, give the coup de grace, but Austin gets up and fucking crushes him with the chair. And it elicits this really violent visceral cheer from an audience like and it, it's beautiful it was like a scream of catharsis like yes! i think it really helps cement austin as the next top guy you get the iconic shot of austin in the sharpshooter passing out blood pumping out of his head iconic great stuff holds up today if you haven't seen this match you're probably not a wrestling fan because feels like one of those ones that everybody's seen and everybody should see our next category so we did matches is characters i had this second out of 36 so really high right but there's some bad in here too uh the great sasuke was a ninja and you could tell he's a ninja because he like appeared suddenly and disappeared just as suddenly his job or friend though stuck around for a few years became a decently sized star until he tried to cut off some guy's dick look i always like taka but I couldn't help feel that his career would have maybe been a bit better or gone differently had he wrestled in WCW first. I think he would have fit in a lot better there. And then perhaps then the WWF wouldn't have been so joyful about his murder at the 2000 Royal Rumble. Doug Furness and Phil LaFon were shooters, I guess. Yeah, shooter. Shooters tour. I remember being excited when they debuted. Uh, but before long, I was longing for the reckless embrace of the Steiner brothers. Triple H, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, was a blue blood to start the year. But then he started to hang out with Shawn Michaels in a move, to me, that made zero fucking sense if you don't know the, what's going on backstage. Like, wh- why is Shawn slumming it with this guy? He spends the year dominating Goldust and turning Mankind face. Why does he get to be with the big boys? Even when he would hang out with Degenerate Shawn, they, they were still at the beginning 
something off. Like like Sean is jumping up and telling people to suck his dick, and like but but standing next to him is Triple H wearing slacks with like a polo shirt tucked in. Like was it like an in between character? Is he supposed to represent like the seedy side of the upper class? Yeah, it's like, yeah, all right, like, this dude here in the polo shirt, right, he knows a thing or two about polo and another thing or two about giant clits, but also he acts like a child. And now that I look at him, I feel like he looks exactly like Freddie Quimby from The Simpsons. Chowder! I mean, who else? Who? When I looked him up, like, I was like, am I right? I looked him up. He looks exactly like Triple H from this era without the hair. Are we really copying The Simpsons characters? All right, let's deal with Sean. Shawn Michaels. I really like his tweener character for the better part of the year. So it's like he's the conquering hero in San Antonio, but then really kind of quickly descends into douchery. He's a dick to Austin, a dick to Brett. But like everyone in the promotion is kind of an asshole at this point, so it kind of works, except for Rocky Maivia. Uh, when he finally goes nuts and tries to kill The Undertaker, his character does a complete turnaround. I still contend to this day, the original DX Sean is one of the best characters in company history. He's such a tremendous asshole. It's kind of like his 1992 character, all grown up, but with all the confidence that comes with being a longtime veteran at this point. Not only is character work on point, but every time he gets into the ring, he's great. Shawn Michaels had main evented. He was the main eventer in 1996, right? But I feel it's the end of 97 where he really becomes a legitimate main event guy. He was as good as anyone there. Ken Shamrock emerging as the resident psychopath. This in a company that started the year with a champion named Psycho Sid. Ken was a man who, much like Kit Ramsey, just couldn't keep it together. I imagine this is a direct impression of Vince McMahon when he hasn't eaten. Like, you know, the storming around his house, punching his own head, not breaking the ankle lock on Shane until Linda whips up some sort of beef and ketchup sandwich. Anyway, Ken Shamrock was completely legit, and he probably should have been a multi-time world champion. I think he just came in at the wrong time. Like, if this dude shows up in 95, or hell, even 2004, he probably whips the business into a frenzy. Instead, he's just, in this year, he's like an important cog in the wheel. But I like him, and he's great. Goldust. We learned that Goldust was not a homosexual, uh, despite the fact that he behaved like one for 15 months. Instead, he was some, it's a strange turn they made with him. He's presented as some sort of kind father. Is that why you kissed all those men, Dustin? For Dakota? Sorry, honey. Sorry. Uh, Daddy had to shove his tongue down Moadib's throat. For you. It's all for you. I ran my hands up and down Razor Ramon's hairy chest for you. Later, I'll write F you on my face for you. You know why, Dakota? Because you remind me of your fucking mother. Look, it's not every good father who will dress like a sexual deviant and get beaten into a porta potty for their daughter. From conquering hero at the Rumble 97 to a year later parading around in the G-string with a ball gag in his mouth, Goldust had quite the transformation in 1997. I feel like the Bariquas were like a bunch of guys like that were really talented and Savio Vega. But why on earth would they dress like this? Is that how Puerto Rican gangsters dress? It's like they wanted the Disney version of a Latino gang. They are dressed like that fucking Latin parrot whenever Donald and Mickey go down south. Seriously, all that's missing is a sombrero and a cigar. And why would Disney have a parrot smoking a cigar? What kind of image is that for children? Also, one of the Bariquas had so much hair in his upper body, it, it, it's, it's Albert level. So much they should have teamed him with Albert and Goldust and called them Goldust and the Bears. I can't think of one time when, this came, when the Bariquas came out that I wasn't disappointed. 
That might be the story of Salvio Vega's career. Disappointment. His character is actually a human form of disappointment. You want a viable challenger at King of the Ring 95? Savio. You want a legitimately tough stable to back up Farouk? Savio. Here's the Caribbean legend. You want a violent gang of street thugs? Savio and the Barbers. LOD seemed to be on their last legs, but still did okay. The mystique was, was still there, at least. When they showed up to help Ahmed Johnson, it meant something to be them. Crush uh, was in jail? I guess in jail, he decided to dress himself like the dirtiest person at a Kid Rock concert. Then he formed his own gang with the Nazis and a fake Undertaker. And these were the faces, by the way. Not the dapper Puerto Ricans or the African-American group struggling for respect. No, no, no. You see, it's the bikers. The bikers based on real-life criminals that are the good guys. Also, how many chances do the Harris brothers need to have? I get it. There's some sort of weird master race twin fetish going on, but enough is enough. Even Hitler would be like, fuck, I've had enough of these bozos. That's a fucking terrible German accent, but I don't even, I, German was Austrian. Hitler was Austrian. It's fine. It's fine. Speaking of teams that should have been faces, <laughs> Henry Godwin gets his neck legitimately broken by the LOD and they come back for revenge and they are the bad guys. The LOD spike pile drive Henry to the mat and the crowd is cheering is this, this is why society's broken when farmers are getting their necks broken by mutant football players we have collectively failed all right sid man i've said so much good stuff about sid but he starts the year's champion he gets beat by michaels wins the title back my worst match of the year it feels like a subdued version of sid nobody wants that i just want him going wild 97 they were really also trying to make max mini a thing and I think he was interesting, but he probably had the Takamichinoku syndrome of having no one to work with on his level. And that's not a height joke, bigots, okay? It's not that. I just felt mini Mankind, mini Vader were like 300 little steps behind our diminutive friend. Steve Blackman was the guy who ran into the ring and then ran his way right into a four-year-long job. Man, you have no idea how much I wish I could just run into a law firm and get myself a job, you know? And then I'd have some sort of stability. Vader is the good Samaritan who saves Steve Blackman. Also, um, he cares about the US of A for some reason. Man, Vader, I think in 97, is just a victim of a stacked roster of over guys. Not that they're necessarily better than him, but I think everybody's more over than him. He's still good and has it in the ring, but just can't catch a break. And it's not because he's a fat piece of shit, all right? Because that's the year later. Flash Funk uh, was the first pimp in the company. No, actually, wait, he wasn't. Slick was the first pimp. Fuck, there's been three pimps? The headbangers took the tag division by storm. They wore kilts, did stupid dances. But the dances, they danced right into our hearts. All right. Rocky Maivia. <laughs> People loathed this guy. And really, who could blame them? No one wants to cheer the corporate guy. In fact, uh, I can't remember a guy being pushed in, in any sort of way like this before. The thing is, is that when you looked at him, though, I kind of wanted to like him. Because he looked good, he moved well, he did like Akeem dance moves between some of his punches. And I think this is probably the single best example of the company listening to the audience and pivoting away from something that wasn't working. Rocky Maivia sucked. The people decided. He transitioned to the people's champ and that was perfect. Suddenly he's interesting. He's speaking in the third person. He's getting these strange messages on his pager. It's like all the arrogance the company had about how he was a blue chipper and all that. It's like they took that arrogance and made it his personal motto because that arrogance 
would color the rest of his career to tremendous success. The character was so strong, The Rock, right? That within a year, they couldn't keep him heel anymore on his own. We also chose to see the dissension between the nation of domination, between Farouk and him. And that's going to come to head next year. Needless to say, though, as soon as Rocky became The Rock, Farouk's days were numbered as leader. I've kind of danced around The Rock for, uh, no, not The Rock. I've danced around Farouk for a while now. And, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention he's one of the most important characters on the show uh, in 1997. Because guess what? The Nation of Domination was at its zenith in 97. No more powder blue clad gladiator Farouk. Now he looked like an actual badass. And he was a badass. Until you got a clear shot of his ass. Which I don't... It's like, it's like such a bulbous protrusion. Like almost all of the mystique of the guy washes away. Right? Like, between his, his weird mashed potato ass and then him saying, like, Oh, please, please, no. It's, it's really hard to take him seriously. But I really enjoyed Militant Farouk. I love that he comes down to the ring at the Royal Rumble with, like, 45 people. I don't know who the women were there. I don't know who half the guys in the suits were. I don't know where they got them. But it, it's like a fucking parade, right? Uh, I think it's kind of a shame by this point in his career, though, that Farouk was kind of washed as a main event level in-ring guy. Because the gimmick really did work, right? It, it did work, and it, he, he was over. I will also forever remember when Vince had to cut in on a WrestleMania 13 interview from Stop Farouk from dropping an N-bomb. He's talking about Ahmed Johnson. He's like, you Ahmed Johnson, you big, dumb, black, stupid... Boy, I almost said it. <laughs> and at, right before he says, boy, I almost said it, Vince cuts in with like, all right, all right, love it. Um, now, you can't talk about Farouk without talking about everybody's favorite Moadib, Ahmed Johnson. <laughs> it takes a lot of balls uh, to underscore a madman screaming, You're going down! With sad piano in the background. But WWF had the balls to do it to the man with thigh pads in 1997. He spends the better part of the year feuding with the nation. Uh, I think this is largely because the company seems to think that if two black guys are in the company in a prominent role at the same time, they have to fight each other. But they do this with everybody. They do it with Latinos. They do it with uh, anybody from Japan. It's like, you're paired up. Oh, Alberto Del Rio? Well, he's fighting Rey Mysterio. Get him in there. Get him in there right now. Oh, Akio's here? Put him against Tajiri. Like, it, they, never let, they never let people of a death different ethnicity other than white just be a person on the show. It's getting better now. But then, forget it, right? Um, I don't know why, why that was always a thing. Then for some reason, Abed nonsensically joins the nation, which on the surface seems idiotic, but then you see Ahmed out there all fucking in black and he looks like the scariest motherfucker on the planet. Of course he would quickly succumb to his own body. But then again, how could he not when he was powerbombing guys on his own legs? Ahmed is also as incoherent as ever. Uh, but again, it feels like a missed opportunity. I feel pretty confident that if he doesn't get injured in 96, he's probably the world champion at some point in 97. And that changes everything, probably for the worse. Mankind starts the year as a crazy freak. Uh, he's been playing for over a year. Then he gets to play his childhood dream of dude love. And I can't believe this character made it to TV. Not because it's bad, but just feels so off-brand for the company. I mean, they must have really loved Mick to actually let him do something he loved. Let it be Cactus Jack. That was incredible. And I think we remember 1998 as the year that made Foley into like a real legend. But in, and in many ways, that's true. The cage really did it. But I wouldn't sleep on how integral 1997 is in his development. Without the character work and the interviews and the goodwill, 
I don't think he gets the opportunities later on. We're going through the characters a lot because there's so many good ones. This, this is why he finished second, right? The Undertaker. Such a great steadying hand for the company in 97. It was too soon for Austin, and they needed someone who could carry the company with credibility while they're putting the finishing touches on Austin's push. It's not like now where it's like, oh, Roman's a main eventer. No, no, we had to build him right. Yeah, things get a bit soap opery with that's got to be Kane and all that. Um, but I think of all uh, the Undertaker things in 97, my favorite might be Paul Bearer declaring himself the fat man and waddling around and screaming. Although I do enjoy watching Undertaker go from stoic world champion to a guy out for revenge. I know he's done revenge before with the likes of Mabel, but all Mabel did was crush his face. Like, Shawn Michaels was a prick that needed to be dealt with. And what's great about the whole thing is able to straddle a bunch of storylines simultaneously. So like he's world champion defending the title against a variety of opponents. He's having Paul Bear holding the secret. Uh, his brother's attacking him. There's a douchebag trying to murder him with a chair. He's like the most nuanced character on the show, all the while being an undead zombie. Stone Cold Steve Austin. He becomes the Stone Cold we all know and love in 97. He starts the year as like a jaw-jacking asshole who has to cheat to win the Rumble. A guy who gets his neck broken, yet still finishes the match, goes out on his own-ish. And his evolution with the double turn was nothing short of incredible. We're already starting to cheer him in 96, but early 97, it was undeniable that we're dealing with the next big, great WWF superstar. And I don't mean superstar in the vein the company does. I mean legit superstar who would almost single-handedly turn the tide against WCW. I feel like I've left somebody out, some people out. Oh yeah, it's the goddamn hearts, right? That heart foundation angle, easily one of my favorites of all time. I don't know if Brian Pillman had a great affinity for the hearts or if he's just pissed at Austin, putting his head in the toilet. Either way, it worked. Then he wanted to bang Goldust's wife and potentially raise Dakota. Uh, so really, a hell of a year before he died. And I think, I mean, not to get too somber here, but I think part of our innocence as fans uh, died with him in 97. Because for me, he was the first wrestler I remember dying while still being active. It was a shock and a real tragedy. Selfishly, I wish he had been healthy and had a main event level run with Austin. But I would trade that for him if he could just be around to raise his son. Davey Boy started the year... Um, as like a weird, interesting tweener. He was clearly a heel, but also feuding with fellow heel Steve Austin. He's got all these problems with his tag partner, and rightly so. Owen was being a complete dick. Then he's obsessed with dog food. Whatever. He's still a killer. A great addition to the team. Jim Neidhart was present. Owen Hart finally got a little bit of a run as a champion. Um, he was super duplicitous to start the year with Davey, but then he went on to end the Rocky My V experiment. But it's the joining with longtime rival Brett that elevates his work here. He gets to be the guy to get Austin ready for his big run. Not that that worked out the way anyone had planned. Actually, wait. Maybe Austin got more, uh, more over because he got to do all the skits. See, Owen was right. Owen was right. Make a shirt. This, of course, brings us to Brett the Hitman Hart. Now, totally transparent here. I've never been a huge fan of Bret Hart the character. I liked him in 1991 because I thought he was like the coolest guy there. But since then, I always thought he was the least interesting character in every feud he was in. Except for maybe Jean-Pierre Lafitte, but who gives a shit about 1995 or Pierre-Carl Ouellette or Carol Leduc or any of those French fucks, all right? But this wasn't the case in 97. He's awesome. Brett is such a great character. The best part is he's 100% justified in all of his actions. He was fucked at the Rumble. He had a right to complain. He got screwed for the belt on Raw in that cage match. He was right to lose it on Vince. 
It's almost eerie how he starts talking about being screwed as early as January 1997. Then he brings his broken family back together, and then he gets booed. And what follows is an incredible character run. He hates the U.S. He thinks all the fans are fucking morons. He shits on the healthcare system and how Americans treat their elderly. Like, his stuff with Austin is dynamite. His stuff with Sean in the wheelchair is maybe even better. His description of the city of Pittsburgh and beating the Patriot while the Star Spangled Banner plays are both moments that will never be forgotten. Just an incredible year from the hitman who made me feel like it was 1991 again. He was the coolest guy in the room. Let's hear from, let's hear from Steven Van Kooten. He says, when the show started last year, I estimated 1997 would be the number one finisher. Glad to see it. It was at least close. Yeah, and it, I'll explain next time how close it actually was. I didn't watch 1997 WF in real time, which I think gives a different perspective to a much revered year in the Federation's history. That being said, in lieu of talking about the whole year, I thought it would be more interesting to focus on the most important character on the show, Bret Hart. In short, Bret Hart is the catalyst for almost everything interesting that happens in 1997 with the exception of Kane. Maybe some people don't find that interesting. (laughs) Hart, who had spent more than 10 years in WWF, had built himself up as a paragon of virtue, a hero to the WWF audience, especially children. As 1997 dawns, we see Bret enter a world that is changing, leaving him behind. His reactions become more extreme, violent, and twisted as he slowly inches towards becoming a heel. Yet, Hart remains true to his values, convinced he is right, and the ones who have changed is everyone around him. Bret's characters is truly compelling the whole year, and more importantly, he's real. For all the flack Hart takes for being a mark for himself, his character is protected, believable, and genuine. This means his moral dilemmas throughout the year are also compelling. Characters like Steve Austin, Shawn Michaels, and even Vince McMahon are interesting on their own, but Brett's character grounds everything in realism and it wouldn't be achievable without him. Vince and everything he becomes owes a lot to Brett's character and the path he takes throughout the year. In retrospect, I believe he is one of the five most important characters in WWF's long history because everything he spawns in 1997 and going forward through the lucrative Attitude Era years. Much like the year that defines him, Bret Hart can be described in one word, volatile. And I think that's what sums up why 1997 is the greatest year in the promotion's history. Even 98, 99, and 2000 couldn't truly reproduce the feeling that something big was going to happen, that nobody was safe, and that the stakes were almost life and death. I felt, it felt like wild animals fighting for survival. Looking at the WWE now, it's gobsmacking to think that the product could ever produce that sort of visceral reaction in its audience. It's glorious, and it's a sad reminder of what it used to be. Steven, that is way better than anything I could have said about Bret Hart, and I agree wholeheartedly with it 100%. And you crystallize so clearly why he's important. And you give me a lot to think about. Thank you, Steven. That was a great comment. Next category out of the 12, WrestleMania. And we have this ranked, we, me. I have it ranked 23rd out of 36. So JT and I did a whole No Holds Barred episode about how this show doesn't deserve to be mentioned with... Like, at the same in the same sentence as the bottom barrel of WrestleManias. And I still maintain that it shouldn't. Not that it doesn't have some rough patches, but I think it's slightly below the middle of the road, and I think that's fair. Although, uh, it's really one of the only weak points in an otherwise awesome year. So if Mania is better and the match quality is higher, 97 walks away with this competition. Anyway, let's get to the show. Opening contest is a four-way uh, to determine the number one contenders for the Tag Team Championship. The Headbangers beat Furnace and LaFon, the Godwins and the New Blackjacks. The match itself is fine. It just doesn't scream WrestleMania in any way. The lesson still wasn't learned that whenever you put new in front of an old name, you're just setting yourself up for failure. The New Blackjacks, the New Rockers, the New Midnight Express. These are all awful ideas. Are there no more, na- no more cowboy names left? 
that we have to go back to blackjacks and call them the new blackjacks? There's a million, the spurs, the whatever, call them whatever. Oh, you know, it's fine. Call them the mustaches. Like, it's all good. Hell, just call them the blackjacks. It's been 20 years. The audience has turned over. If current day WWE had two guys in 2021 re referring to themselves as a goddamn drip king on the same show, why can't we have two teams call each other the blackjacks 20 years apart? Anyway, the match is not a great opener. I have no issues with any of these teams. Uh, I think they're all, they all have qualities. But it's absurd to think that this is the combination of matches we got on this show. And it's not, but the, it's crazy though. It's not even the worst WrestleMania opener to date. Like I'd probably have two, four, six, and 11 as, as worse openers. It's a fine match. Next, we have a uh, hated babyface blue chip superstar uh, beating a Samoan masquerading as a Persian sultan. <laughs> Again, this match isn't awful or anything, but this is who you choose as your big challenger. The dude is so not over that they have all the world champions before Hulk Hogan as his manager. And how on earth do you want Rocky to get cheered when his dad has to run in from the audience to save his ass from a bunch of old men? Rocky Johnson's pumped, right? And I'm sure it was a great moment for them, but really not a great way to put over a top face. Uh, Triple H and Goldust then have match number 70 in their never-ending series. It's good. It, I think it's the best of their series, so it's good. But why are we doing rematches at WrestleMania? Also, China shook the shit out of Marlena, so no way she was having any more Dakotas after that. In a completely nonsensical match, the Bulldog and Owen defended the tag team belts against Mankind and Vader. You have Mankind and Vader in their primes, and you slap them in a tag team, and then have them lose their one shot by a double countout. Match is good, though. Again, like how could it not be? Everybody involved is good. But it hurts the shows that guys of this level talent are all thrown out there in a throwaway match. Bret and Austin have that match. We talked about most important match in company history, potentially. Chicago Street Fight, super fun. And all, all six guys make it work. Is that all three? All six. Um, it's uh, LOD and Ahmed against The Nation. I could live with it, the kitchen sink being carried down. It's a little on the nose so that Vince could say, look, they brought it. Uh, but whatever. It's a great comeuppance match for the nation. And LOD crazy over in Chicago. Uh, and I think this match really helps the show way more than people think. Then Sid and Undertaker have one of the worst main events of all time. Yeah, okay. So look, clearly the problem with this WrestleMania is the way the undercard is used. I think you can still have Sid and Undertaker stink up the main event and still have a grid show because you can't touch Bret and Austin, right? So I think you can open with Sid and Bulldog against Furnace and LaFon, but have them go all out. Their, their match the previous month, it felt like they weren't going all out. I would then have Rocky defend the Intercontinental title against RVD, who's doing the whole Mr. Monday Night thing. Hell, you could even do Lawler and Tommy Dreamer if you really wanted to tie in ECW, and that would have been a crazy hot match too. Then do Vader and Mankind in the street fight. Whatever. I feel like they just it's just a, a, a salvageable show, but they overthought it. So like, oh, you know, we already have two no DQ matches and then the main event for some reason. We can't have another one. But damn it, fuck. I'd rather have Vader and Mankind in a Duchess of Queensbury rules match than anything involving a goddamn sultan. And if those Sicilian pirates hadn't tricked Spartacus, he would have fled Rome and 3,000 slaves wouldn't have been crucified along the Appian Way. What do Sicilian pirates have to do with sultans? What the fuck does an overweight Samoan have to do with Persian culture? Also, if you like the ECW stuff I talked about, check out ECW Three-Way Dance every other Thursday on North-South. JT, Jenny Smith, John D'Amato, reliving the glory years of ECW. Their latest episode deals with Raven taking over the Sandman's family. And I'm sure, 
I would have hated this if it was Alexa Bliss doing it in 2021, but Raven can do no wrong. And I love uh, the three hosts of this show. So check it out. They're great. Next category, world title storyline. Second out of 36. Now, in many ways, I wanted to trash the year for the way the title was hot potato at the start. In three months, we had Sid dropping to Michaels, who vacated, then Brett won, who dropped to Sid the next night, then he lost to The Undertaker. But man, it made the title feel like an important cog in the WWF wheel. Not only that, it's the first time in forever that it really felt like four or five guys could legitimately challenge and conceivably win the belt. As we started the year, I think everyone would have believed Sid, Sean, Brett, Vader, Austin, or The Undertaker as world champion. And they're all in the mix. Well, Steve Austin seemed more content to ruin Brett's life, but you get what I mean. I mean, Steve Austin was just all over that man. And quite frankly, I'm surprised he didn't try to bang his wife. Then again, we've all seen wrestling with shadows, and a Julie who strayed away from Brett probably would have improved poor Brett's unfortunate life. But I love the chaos of the title scene. Vince would scream constantly in the 90s that anything can happen in the WWF. And in 1997, it did for the world title. It was exciting that a world title could change at any moment. They'd never really done that before. And it's important to keep in mind, too, that they're coming off an age where the champion held onto the title for at least a few months to half a year before dropping. Hell, even Brett, <laughs> as a clear transitional champion, 95, 96, it's still a five-month reign. We forget that, right? Uh, plus, you're never going to hear me complain about Sid fucking Justice being the world champion ever, even when he produces the worst WrestleMania match of all time. Uh, main event, not the worst one. Fuck, not even close. The chaos made it great, though. Brett wins a vacated title at the Final Four. The very next night, we get the very first world title change in the history of Monday Night Raw. Brett has Sid, Sid cinched in the... Brett has Sid cinched. I shouldn't have written it that way. In the sharpshooter. Here's Steve Austin nailing with a chair and give the big guy the belt back. Think to the excitement when Brett's fighting Sid in the cage in that February night on Raw. Austin and Taker trying to get involved so that their match at Mania will be the one for the championship. These guys weren't fighting to have moments or to be at WrestleMania. They were fighting for world titles. You had to tune in. You'd rush home to tune in. Following this period of chaos, we get an excellent Undertaker run in which he does a fantastic job of stabilizing the belt. That was needed. You have the chaos, Undertaker stabilizes for a few months, and it helps. And his reign foreshadows the arrival of Kane and also gives us Ron Simmons, oh, please, no, in a world title match on pay-per-view. You got a fun outing, uh, outing with Steve Austin and an underrated brawl with Vader, and Taker kind of has a sneaky good title reign. But we can't mention the world title scene without mentioning how um, incredible the Hart Foundation were in 97. I mean, this could be spread across every category, but we may as well deal with it now as it's the dominant storyline, the main event storyline for 1997. Imagine a man reconciling with his long estranged brother, putting away years of bitterness and resentment. Now, imagine a crowd booing the shit out of it. Bret Hart reconciles Owen Davey and forms a second and far superior version of the Hart Foundation. He then tirades against America, not only get him booed in 50 states, but get him cheered in the rest of the world. It's such a unique angle that will never be replicated, right? And, you know, I'll never forget him. You know, he, he's shitting on Pittsburgh. And then the next week, he's in Halifax, Nova Scotia, getting a hero's welcome. Then he's beating up Patriot. Then he goes back to Edmonton. And, you know, everybody's cheering him because he's wearing an Oilers jersey, right? Brett was our guy, you know? He's talking about how in Canada we take care of the elderly. No, we don't, okay? That's our secret. But he made it seem, we made us seem better than we were, right? I, like, the, the, what are they doing? We got to send these people into space, Okay. They would be great for space exploration. 
because you send the elderly up, you know, you don't really have to worry about getting them back, right? And you're giving them this great experience. Anyway, the Hart Foundation dominated the summer. Brett wins his fifth world title to a chorus of boos in New Jersey. They almost booed him as much as they booed Governor Christine Whitman. Now, the follow-up was a bit weak. The Patriot, no thanks. But the angle was hot enough to get us to Sean at the Survivor Series. And sadly, that was a completely uneventful match. But it did give us Shawn Michaels as champion in what is probably the best character work of his career. So, I don't know. This year is just so good. Um, DX was such a good faction at the end in the main event, too. They could do no wrong. Like, it, what an incredible run for a main event scene. Uh, speaking of main event, I guess action on North-South, No Holds Barred, drops every other Saturday on the North-South Connection podcast network. JT and I are doing a major stretch project for 2021. Uh, we're going to talk about later, but uh, once a month, we are still ranking every WWF world title change. So eventually, we're going to rank the screw job. We'll see where that goes. Right now, we're deep into the 1990s as we've just dealt with the Ultimate Warrior and his, his win over Hogan, his loss to Slaughter. And we're about to launch into the last vestiges of Hulkamania. No holds barred every other Saturday on North-South. And I'd be remiss too if I didn't plug the episode and every episode of Behind the Connection where JT is just chatting with every um, person who does a show on uh, North-South. You know, there's been episodes with Ryan Gray, uh, which I really loved. It was great to hear his insight. And, and I did one with him. So check it out. JT's a great interviewer, and it's a really fun time. Mid-card storyline. You know, we're going to be in the mid-card, but never in the mid-card are Ryan Gray and Johnny C. WCW must die is chronicling the dying day, the dying breaths of WCW. There's so much Russo and so much fun to be had Wednesdays on North-South. Mid-card storyline is our next category. Fourth out of 36. So we get Triple H starting the year as Intercontinental Champion. And as a ratings ploy for Thursday Raw Thursday, they hotshot the title to a very slick and shiny Rocky Maivia. Then Dwayne kind of shits the bed. You know what? It's not his fault. He's just not ready, and they don't push him in a way that helps him. As long as Rocky, Goldust, and Triple H are in the mix, it's not great in the Intercontinental title scene. But holy hell, Owen Hart wins it and then becomes embroiled in a feud with Stone Cold Steve Austin he's fighting the hottest guy in the company and it's for the Intercontinental title. It was great to see Owen get his due after all these years because he busted his ass for the company. From May to the end of the year, the Intercontinental scene is incredibly hot because it all goes through Austin and Owen. Even potential paralysis can't slow it down. So even when there's a tournament going on to crown the vacant champion, it's still good. The company also adds the European title to the mix to bolster the mid-card and after a grueling tournament, we get a great final between Davey and Owen. Yes, Davey steals the finish from the 1992 match with Brett, but the moment is like the happiest the German people have been since Hitler marched his ass through France. And Davey is completely credible as champion. And the title's a welcome addition. He really helps boost it up. Then they job him in his hometown to the biggest prick in the company. Also, he had dedicated the match to his dying sister. Look, it wasn't a good night for the Smith family, except for Diana, who got on camera for a few seconds. So that was great. I'd say the title somewhat loses its luster as Triple H runs around the ringside before pinning HBK later in the year. But then again, we just had zombies and guys getting hit with hammers. So by comparison, Michael's crying over clearly lying down for his buddy. Kind of feels quaint. Everything has a story. You know, Farouk hates other black peoples. Goldust is not queer, as he says, despite Jerry Lawler's questioning. Shamrock hates dogs. They, they write it for everyone. They write it. They wrote for everyone. And it almost all worked. Tag Team Storyline. If you like teamwork, check out the North-South Connection Network, uh, North-South Network 2020 Awards, year-end awards. 
Fuck, I messed that up. I'm sorry, Ryan. But I really did enjoy the show. Ryan Gray hosts Mike Eller and Mike Rossi. And they're breaking down all it was 2021 for WWE, AEW, and the Indies. Look, it's Meltzer's list, but with way more class and way more of Ryan defending all of the WWE's decisions. So you need to check it out. But seriously, um, it's been a joy seeing new people join this join this thing we've created. And watching them grow is, man, I... I'm, I'm, I'm just proud of this thing we created. So check out this because I really enjoyed this show. Part one is live. Part two is coming. Check it out. Tag team storyline, 10th out of 36. It's not the best, but it's extremely solid. Owen and Davey are fantastic champions and their run is pretty great top to bottom. See, it's a time where they went out of their way to give the champions different opponents every show. They go at it with Furnace and LaFont, Mankind Invader, the LOD, and they finally, and finally the Headbangers win it eventually, right? And while these matches are all fun in their own way, we also get this really incredible series. It's on Raw, though, with Steve Austin and Michaels and Austin and Dude Love. See, the tag division was where Foley got to play out his boyhood dream. Think of the last time major events were sewn into the tag team division. The tag matches felt like main event level stuff because it was inhabited by main eventers. And guys took the division seriously. Towards the end of the year, the headbangers were champions. and hey, Whatever. It was nothing, but it was fun. It was new. And people liked the headbangers, right? But then we see the birth of one of the most important teams of all time, the New Age Outlaws. And right off the bat, thank heavens there were no Age Outlaws at any point because they would have slapped the word new in front of it and would have been doomed to fail. But Billy Gunn and Rockabilly, when you think about what they are doing earlier in the year, like early in the year, you're like, you're yearning for an appearance from Disco Inferno, right? And instead you get Billy Gunn in more denim than when he was a fucking cowboy. But on the other hand, you get this guy who spent the year singing the national anthem for pussies everywhere. Who on earth thought this would work, putting Road Dog and Billy Gunn together? Call himself the badass. Badass Billy Gunn. I'm smiling thinking about it because it's fucking so simple that it's genius. But then they smashed a boombox on Hawk's head, shaved his mohawk, called the headbangers and blackjack steers and queers at <laughs> Survivor Series, and they're off to the races. The shtick wasn't there yet, but the team's birth is like the most important of the era. Uh, speaking of eras if you like the Ruthless Aggressive era you can hear all about it with Jake Williams on the Ruthlessly Aggressive podcast in the latest episode Jake welcomes Ryan Gray fuck I keep talking about Ryan Ryan has just fucking infiltrated everything but it's good because Ryan's a good dude um <laughs> fucking Ryan he's everywhere he's here he's there he's here he's there he's every fucking where Ryan Gray Ryan Gray that's a Ted Lasso reference that you should probably all go watch um yeah, so he, he's on Ruthless Aggressive with Jake, and they've broken down late November 2002 Raw on SmackDown. And this is a period that has Ernest Miller on commentary. If that doesn't sell you, nothing will. Ruthlessly Aggressive podcast um, every other Tuesday on North-South. Women's Storyline is another um, category we deal with, but I deal with. But there's nothing here, so it gets the median score, 16 out of 30. But holy hell, did Christine Whitman look like dog shit next to Sonny and Sable at SummerSlam. Am I right? That entire key segment uh, where they're calling people is probably the greatest women's segment in company history. Sable was incredible in her role and Sonny was like determined to show Sable up. So in the end, we all won. Royal Rumble is our next category. By the way, if you like the Royal Rumble, check out now entering, now entering the Royal Rumble every other Monday on the North-South Connection Podcast Network. JT and I are breaking down every single Rumble appearance of every guy who's ever entered the event. 
So on some episodes, you get a bunch of guys like Tugboat, LOD, uh, Shane Douglas was on that one too. But then another episode, we focus on one guy because he's long, so I got like Davey Boy Smith. And next week, it's Rick fucking Flair. So check it out. Now entering the Rumble. Now entering the Royal Rumble every other Monday on North-South. So let's deal with the Royal Rumble match. I have it ranked third out of 34. And I think this one gets a bit unfairly maligned due to the number of unknown Mexicans that are involved in the proceedings. But I'm going to tell you something now that might sound surprising. There's not that many unknown Mexicans in here. There's only four, and one of them is Mil Mascaris. Yes, we could have done without Pierroth, Cibernetico, and the Latin Lover, okay? Fuck them. But it's four guys. And I think we need to consider the, the state of the company at this point, too, when we're dealing with this rumble, right? Because the world title picture was so all over the place that you really got a sense that almost anyone could win this thing. I think you could probably make a strong case for Ahmed, Davey, Hunter, Owen, Farouk, Brett, Rocky, Mankind, Vader, Undertaker. I think they all could have won. Now, some would be better than others, but I think they're all contenders on some level. That's a third of the field right there. And then you throw in an all-time performance from Stone Cold Steve Austin, and I don't understand how this isn't considered one of the best rumbles of all time. Austin's easy MVP of the match. He carries the match from beginning to end, always engaging and interesting throughout. He has great brawling segments with everyone while winning the crowd over and making himself a huge star. As good as he is work-wise, though, it's his charisma that elevates the whole match here. In 94, you had Diesel throwing guys out and slowly getting over. Austin's using every second, right, to, to get himself over. Like every single second. He's doing push-ups. He's looking at his watch. Um, his face when Bret Hart comes out is, is absolutely incredible. I think my favorite part uh, is his treatment of Jake Roberts. First is Jake's coming down. Austin mock prays in the ring as he's coming down the aisle. And then he very quickly tosses Jake's. Jake. And then crosses the ring, storms across the ring, gets the snake in the bag, and throws it on him. He throws a man's pet at him dismissively to get out of here. Now take this fucking snake with you. Such a small moment, but a very telling microcosm of his whole performance. And I think the biggest pop of the night is really interesting because even though Austin gets super over, it's when Bret Hart technically eliminates him with the match from the match. The biggest heat of the match was, of course, fake Razor Ramon. And it's not good heat. It's like, I'm legitimately mad that I bought a ticket and you're on the show. Uh, your impression of Razor Ramon is putrid and I'm insulted as a human being for having to sit through your shit. It's that kind of heat. Last eight guys in the ring of this match are Austin, Brett, Kane, Taker, Mater, Mater, Vader, Mankind, Rock, and Terry Funk. Whoa! What a phenomenal lineup of interesting uh, guys. And it's got a clever finish. The match is so well booked from start to finish. The only real slow spots are the 90 seconds where Crush and Phoenix are together. Then we strap this thing to Austin's back and he entertains the hell out of us for 40 minutes. And all the dead weight was served to Austin anyway. Great story. Wonderful execution. Star-making performance. If you go back to this one, try it with an open mind. It's fast-paced and I really think it's a great effort from start to finish. Historical importance. Three out of 36. This third. This is the year that sets up the big year that puts WCW down for the count. They're taking risks. Risks are important in art, and wrestling is art. They're taking risks, and they create this unique environment. Brett was a face in Canada, heel in the U.S. That could have cost him tons of money, but instead it just it boosted everything, everything um, uh, character-wise and storyline-wise. Yes, Canadian heels always get a bit cheered a bit more in Canada. Sure, Dino Bravo was treated like a king in Montreal for his whole career, regardless of how shitty he was, right? 
but the company presented the Hart Foundation in a way that they were heroes to Canada. No Chris Jericho being like, boy, I'm happy I moved. No, Brett was out there pushing Canadian values for all to see. You got the chaos in the main event that they've recreated since. But look, the most important stuff is clearly the rise of Stone Cold Steve Austin. And that alone almost exclusively makes this year among the most important. His build is near perfect. The Rumble win in a, the most unique way, cheating to win it. I've never seen anything that. A gutsy performance in one of the greatest matches of all time. Iconic shots with the blood pouring out of his head. The slow build through the intercontinental tag team title scenes. Hell, even the injury helped him. It places him firmer in the anti-authority character that would be his calling card. And the stunner sequence leading up to Vince is incredible. It looked like he fucking stunnered. Whenever he stunnered Jerry Lawler, it seemed like his head came off with the crown. Uh, but it turned a, a hot character into a Hogan-level babyface. And we get the birth of the Mr. McMahon character. Holy shit. What a fortunate turn of events for the company. I mean, not the best turn of events for Bret Hart. Fair. Look, but the screw job, the most infamous match in company history, would eventually lead to the WWF hitting new creative heights, billions of dollars, and eventually buying their competition. Sadly for Bret, uh, <laughs> leads to two years of mediocrity and a kick to the head like really eerily close to Hanukkah. So... Anyway, plus you get the growth of The Rock, Triple H, Mankind, The Undertaker doing really interesting stuff, the debut of Kane, the debut of Hell in the Cell. This is a huge year. Its influence is crazy. And now that I'm talking through it, I might have ranked it too low. I don't think it would have changed in the rankings anything, so it's fair, but yeah. Always important, too, is my man Jordan Duncan and Andrew Reich breaking down AEW um, with You Know What That Means. Fridays on North-South. They make me excited to be fans listening to them and are really highlighting a product that is totally up my alley right now. Let's deal with the SummerSlam. The SummerSlam, I have fifth out of 34. This show is way better than you probably remember it. It starts out with a great opening package in a perfect world with the like the beginning of Beauty and the Beast. Um, but it really sets the stage for a fantastic two and a half hours of professional wrestling. Mankind uh, versus Hunter, great opener in the cage. I always mark out when I see that blue cage. And these guys use it to stiff the living shit out of each other while riling the crowd into a frenzy. China, China's really important to this too. She finds all kinds of cool ways to interfere. Yes, yes, she almost botches the end by coming in and taking Mick's big dive away. That doesn't take away that this is a great way to start the show. A shame uh, it doesn't get much play when talking about any great openers for any show because it really is fun. And I find it interesting that Hunter is the perfect foil for Mick as he transitions to babyface. Just as three years down the road, Mick will be the perfect foil for Hunter as he ascends to the top of the promotion as a heel. It's a great match. And no matter when you look at it, it's still fun to watch. Yes, China nearly made it so Mick Foley couldn't communicate with his children, but that cage door was heavy. What did you want her to do? It also gives us the biggest pop of the night, Mankind winning the cage match. I guess the people were just too weirded out by the Intercontinental finish to cheer Austin. Goldust and Pillman have a fine match. Then Pillman cuckolds Dustin and becomes some sort of pseudo-father figure to poor unfortunate Dakota. LOD tries to cripple the Godwins. I guess they just didn't like their country rapist outfits. Great promos on this night too. I, like Austin just telling Michael Cole and his little goatee to get the hell out of his face warms my heart. And I, honorable mention, of course, Shawn Michaels, who says of Bret Hart, <laughs> I love this. He goes, I have no problem with Bret. We solved our issue at WrestleMania last year when I beat him. Fucking great dig. Um, 
and this, of course, too, was uh, we talked a bit about it in the women's section. But when they tried to get a human being on the phone for this contest, even when they did, the person wasn't watching. This skit must have felt like a fucking eternity in the building, <laughs> just waiting for something to happen. Uh, and, and it's so funny because that whole thing with Governor Christy Whitman and you see these newspaper articles with The Undertaker standing stoically next to her. That kills me every time. Like, what must she have been thinking standing next to this fucking giant ogre? Davy and Shamrock have a decent outing. I, Ken Shamrock does a lot of great little things so well. I love the way he, like, preps someone for a belly-to-belly. And there's another great little moment where he has to, like, actively reach his feet back to get Davy over for a sunset flip. It's not a classic or anything, but a fun match. The worst match of the night is the DOA versus the Bariquas. That's not even that bad. It's just surrounded by quality stuff. It moves well enough. The action's pretty fun. I just don't care about anybody. Worst booking of the night? Obviously, Austin breaking his neck. We remember Owen and Austin for all the wrong reasons. I mean, you have no choice but to because it fucking nearly ended his career and it was legitimately scary watching live. The the neck breaking is historically important, but up until that point, they were really having an awesome match. They're breaking out power bombs and German suplexes, and the pace is great start to finish. I always loved Owen as a worker, but he always lacked the poise and star power of his brother. And I think it was really starting to come out here. And it's a shame because I think if he had if he had, had a match, if, if the match had just ended the way it was originally supposed to end, this match and the whole show is probably remembered more fond- fondly. Vince, Jair, and the King are good on commentary too. Lawler is definitely a step down from perfect the year before, uh, but no one says anything particularly enraging. In fact, <laughs> Vince gets a taste of his own medicine because he starts to make a joke about, is it a city or a hamlet? And everyone just fucking ignores him, which felt good because he always no-sells everybody's jokes. It's also kind of eerie hearing JR. In, before Austin gets pile driven, he says, the story of the match is Austin's neck. Impressive and sad, too, that Vince was able to call the rest of the night after that injury. Impressive because it's very clear Austin was hurt bad and he potentially lost his bigger star ever and kept going. But sad for the same reasons. He's clearly a psychopath. And the main event, like I mentioned earlier, is amazing. Everything to do with the finish, the spit, the missed chair shot, the reluctant cover. Michael's fucking pissed as he leaves the building, disgusted with himself. And the crowd is cheering, but also booing like crazy. Like it, It's such a weird atmosphere. And Brett being cocked with the belt is a fantastic sight. He's so entrenched with 1997 that it's, it's so weird to think that his reign is only two months here. Anyway, uh, the SummerSlam is a great show. Uh, it flies by. Incredibly historically important. Easy watch. Easy top-tier SummerSlam. What's also a great show... Uh, is Marcus and Tim on Viewer's Choice. After every major wrestling show, they immediately break it down. They watch it so that you don't have to. And really so that I don't have to. And these guys kill it. They have great chemistry. And each episode they do gets better and better. Yes, Marcus likes Bret Hart too much. But Bret is incapacitated now. So he can be objective, right? Um, I love their. I love that they, they pivoted with their show too. Like it was one thing which worked well. But then they pivoted... And I think it's even better. And that's a hard thing to do. So major kudos to Marcus and Tim. Um, I make it a point to listen to the show after every event, even if I haven't watched it. Viewer's choice after every major show on North-South. Worst show of the year. I had a tie uh, between the Survivor Series and In Your House Revenge of Taker. And since the Survivor Series is probably one of the most important shows in company history, let's deal with that instead. Fun fact, uh, this is the first pay-per-view I ever got to see live. Because it's the first one they ever came to Montreal. I also cannot believe watching it today that they allowed the announcer to do the matches in French. Uh, le prochain combat! 
the, the names in French for guys was always crazy. It was uh, L'Impitoyable, Steve Austin, instead of Stone Cold. Or instead of Psycho Sid, Sid Le Cinglé. And the French commentators, they always have this weird cadence of going high. But no, tu me dis ça! They go too high in their voice for some reason. Anyway, I was excited because I'd never been to a pay-per-view. First up is the Outlaws and the Godwins versus the Headbangers and the new Blackjacks. It's terrible. The Outlaws come out to no music. The Godwins get cheered, uh, though they made me fear for my safety. So whatever. The Truth Commission match happens, and this is terrible. They fight the DOA, and every fall ends with the interrogator pinning someone with a side suplex. And no, I don't think this is some sort of local tribute to Dino Bravo. And yes, I know Kurgan is from Montreal and was probably trained or molested by Dino, but I think this is more just plain old laziness. Also, a guy named Sniper pins a guy named Skull. In another shocking turn, uh, the apartheid-pushing South Africans, led by a cult leader, are not the most racist people in the match. This is also probably where they decided to make Kurgan a juggalo. Team Canada fights Team USA next. Team Canada, which only has uh, one of the four members who are actually from Canada. Only poor Phil Lafong with his French-ass name is Canadian. And he's not even from Quebec. Nor was he trained or molested by Dino Bravo. Dino didn't touch Ontario's. That's a known fact. Okay, Anyone from Ontario was safe from Dino Bravo's clutches. Team USA is a rag... like a ragtag group of Vader, disinterested Mark Miro, disinterested Goldust, and a guy who jumped into the ring from the crowd. Again, it's not good. It's hard to fuck up these Star Wars series matches, but they do. But I'll never forget the pop Davey gets when he hits Vader with the chair. No, no, with the chair, with the bell uh, and pin. Like I, They're treated like heroes. Kane then makes his in-ring debut, uh, beating the shit out of Mankind. Again, nothing match, but also debuts the red lighting. That the company would keep until they're in their back pocket until they wanted to further infuriate their fan base 22 years later. I bet Vince was like going through the warehouse and was like, wait, 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 we pay for these red lights? Well, we're going to use them. Who cares if they can't see? Shamrock ends up pinning The Rock in their Survivor Series match, kicking off their eight-month feud. Uh, it's Shamrock, Ahmed, and LOD versus The Nation. It should have been better, but Farouk, Brown, and Kama really kind of pulled this down. And they're all better, so it, it's weird that that happened. Austin comes back and beats up Owen for four minutes and pins him. Felt like justice. Austin couldn't move, and it didn't matter. And then we get the most infamous match of all time, I guess. I mean, unless... I guess it must be. Maybe... Yeah, it's the most infamous match, for sure. Brett and Sean, it's really good until the bullshit at the end. They brawl around the unit is great. The in-ring stuff is very solid until the bullshit. And we all know what happens here. In the building, though, it was weird. I guess I I was sitting far away... But we started immediately thinking, well, I don't think they told him he was losing. It was surreal because that had never happened, or at least we'd never seen it before. Then he starts signing out WCW. He stayed around for a while, too, and smashed more shit. Uh, we left with a sense of, like, half angry and half what the fuck did I just see. But I was just happy that Sean won because he's better than Brett. Look, it's not like it's hard to watch, right? But when you look at the talent they have, this may go down as the most disappointing show of all time. All the Survivor Series matches fail horribly, and that in itself is a feat. Best show of the year. Well, look, best new show on North-South is WWE War. JT and Marcus are watching the WWE by season. So uh, the night after WrestleMania till doing pay-per-views, the one after WrestleMania to the WrestleMania the year before. And in their latest episode, they're telling us the good and the bad from SummerSlam 2011 and Night of Champions 2011. Their rage at the treatment of CM Punk is going to be my alone time inspiration for the next six weeks. Uh, before I get to the best show, let's let's hear from Dave Hall. Dave Hall, 
1997 was the year that brought me back to the company. I had a little, uh, I had become a little disgruntled with the product in 1995. No kidding. 36, 37, I'm sure once I had 2021. Um, uh, and even then started keeping a closer eye on WCW following the formation of the NWO. Although Austin had caught my attention, the rest of the product had not caught up. Then came 1997 and the Hart Foundation. I had always been a fan of Bret Hart, but the Canada versus USA really got my attention. As a fan in Australia, everything Bret said about the USA seemed to ring true in my ear. And I was siding with the Hart Foundation. And Dave, thank you for siding with Canada. Back to Dave. I will admit the Survivor Series screw job nearly saw me completely turn away from the WWF. How could Vince treat my favorite wrestler like that? However... At the same time, I was a massive fan of Stone Cold and his rise up the card and the growing Austin versus McMahon storyline had me hooked. And I wanted to see Stone Cold. As a result, 1997 not only drew me back, but totally hooked me for the following years. What more can we want as a fan? If only we could, the company could do that with today's product. Yeah, right. No kidding. Right, Dave? Best athletes they've ever had. And no, whatever. I've made that point a million times. Thank you, Dave. All right. Best show of the year. It can only be one thing. Canadian Stampede in your house. Look, the worst match on the card is the opener between Triple H and Mankind. And I have that as a solid three and a half star match. Right? They really helped each other care about each other. It's really good, right? The match is solid. Ends with them fighting all over Calgary. And thank heavens this pay-per-view didn't happen in February. Both guys would be dead. Then the great Sasuke crushed some no-name jobber in a great match. Undertaker and Vader have a solid as hell pay-per-view match. And now, the big 10-man tag match. And look, this is the single best tribute to Bret Hart that could have happened in WWF. It's a love letter to the entire Hart family. Right from the entrances, you know you're about to watch something special. Pillman comes out and looks like he's having the time of his life. Anvil is next. He gets a bigger pop than he's ever had in his career. Then Rule Britannia pumps through and it's Davey gets this hero's welcome. The crowd is so hot they even cheer Diana Hart-Smith. This after she tried to ruin Shawn Michaels' life. This after she ruined Davy Boy's life. Owen Hart gets a pop for the first time in years, and it's massive, but nothing compares to Brett. The building is shaking. And watching this live, and even re-watching it, you're watching a family go to war. And it, it's a family, so it matters more. Like It's like they have each other's backs. They, they, they care about each other. Ugh, man, they were going to war for me to rid the wrestling world of these fucking hyenas. The match is incredible. Non-stop action for nearly 40 minutes, which is why I didn't rewatch it for the project. But what could I add to it, right? Owen Hart clearly pins Steve Austin in the center of the ring, gives his team the win. Then the Hart Foundation get the massive celebration to close the show. It's all just like such great storytelling and really the probably the last great truly wrestling moment for the entire Hart family. Easy five stars. And what's crazy is it could have been even better. Instead of Austin Shamrock goals the LOD, we... Originally, we were supposed to get Austin Shamrock, Foley, Sid, and Shawn Michaels. And the heat would have been so crazy for that. They would have probably burned everyone alive in the building. As it stands for me, one of the greatest matches in company history. Easy to watch every day. I haven't really delved too much into the greatest shows of all time on this list. Uh, but I do have like a ranking of like everything by average star rating. Again, totally subjective. But I have this rank averaging out as a four-star show. Context, WrestleMania 17 averages out to 3.29 stars. And like 0.7 stars in this is massive. Like it's a massive difference. Because like it doesn't seem like a lot, but everything kind of averages at, like almost everything is between like two and a half and like three and 3.4, you know? 
And without factoring in XT, Canadian Stampede stands alone atop my list for greatest averaged out show in company history. Jared Robert. 1997 is definitely one of my favorite years in WWE history. Monday Night Raw becomes Raw as War. Yeah, that's something we didn't talk about, but that's true. Which was destination television for me. Watching it back, it's amazing how well the majority of the product still holds up almost 25 years later. It's by no means flawless and has some questionable material that made it to air. But this was a period where the WWF was taking risks, agreed, Jared, and basically throwing everything at the wall just to see what sticks. I appreciate that, and sometimes I find it hard to believe that the ratings were still down and WWF was still losing to WCW. Lots of times, 1997 Raw was actually way better than Monday Nitro. Yeah, I agree. But I think it's, it's, it's things take time. Ratings doesn't change right away. It, it takes time. And, and it, was, it was doing it. It was a better show for Nitro way before it started taking over. Uh, back to Jared. This were, There were times this year where Raw was actually better than the pay-per-views. <laughs> That's also true. I especially enjoyed the Raws in the summer of 97, where they went back and forth from Canada to the USA week to week. That's not to say the pay-per-views weren't good. Canadian Stampede is one of the best in-your-house shows ever. One of the best shows ever. 1997 SummerSlam show was probably the best one in years. I agreed with that too. When I think of 97, the first thing that comes to mind is Bret the Hitman Hart and Stoke Cold Steve Austin in their I Quit match at WrestleMania 13. Yeah. To this day, I think that may be one of my top three favorite matches in wrestling. I don't think you're alone, Jared. This was really Austin and Hart's year. It's a shame the feud never really got an appropriate blow-off as Bret left for WCW. And he probably should have wanted to drop the belt to Steve at WrestleMania 14. Yeah. And what's crazy about that is if that timeline happens where Bret stays, I don't know if Sean breaks his back too. It really changes everything. But I agree. I don't think Stone Cold Steve Austin is hurt by it. But I think he probably could have been enhanced by finally beating Brett. Back to Jared. 1997 was also one of Shawn Michaels' most entertaining years. Well, once he starts turning heel and eventually feuds with The Undertaker. Prior to that, his run as a so-called babyface is pretty insufferable. I'm talking about post losing his smile. I have the right to live my life freely and openly on national TV. Shawn, where he's hypocritically self-righteous to Taylor Swift-like proportions. <laughs> Thankfully, HBK becomes the hated heel. He should have been at the summer rolls into the fall. The downside is he steals Brett's heel, but he's just so much easier to hate. I've always wondered whether Brett should have returned to Babyface after SummerSlam. Yeah, I think he should have returned to a Babyface after um, uh, some, after he dropped the title back to Austin. Probably a bit later. Uh, I could go on and on about 97, but I'd be here all day. It still holds up great. Surprisingly well in 2021. I agree. Um, the, only, the only thing I would say, Jared, is I really think Sean was doing more of a tweener thing in the summer of 97 before he turns heel. I think him saying, like, I am allowed to live how I want, to me that rings a bit tongue-in-cheek. But I could see how it might not. I, I mean, maybe that's just me doing it. All right. Top five worst wrestlers, top five best wrestlers, and then we're out of here. Top five worst. Number five. Ah, Mad Johnson. Yeah, you see it? Yeah. Just, yeah. Just an incredible waste of potential here. Uh, no matter if he was in red with thigh pads or black with thigh pads, that fucking Speedo could not stay out of Ahmed Johnson's asshole. It just wanted to live there. Perhaps this is why he initially, initially started screaming, You're going down! And then he just kept screaming it. And the producers couldn't get him to stop, so they're like, fuck it, make it part of the show. You're going down! It's not really his fault, though. You know, it, almost. He's bad. But, I mean, he's in there with an unmotivated Farouk, a neutered crush, and a motivated Savio Vega for most of the year. I, you can't believe this guy was going to be a world champion in 96. All right, number four, the Patriot. Nothing wrong with Del Wilkes, I guess. However, there's nothing right with him either. They based a whole Survivor Series match around him, and then he's replaced at the last minute. 
And the guy they get to replace him in the match is the dude that was the character model for Minecraft characters. All of Patriots' matches with Brett, they're all on pay-per-view, except for some bullshit in England with Flash Funk. You can't even get past two and a half stars. Look, when you drag Brett down in one of his best years, you deserve to be on this list. Number three, Chains. <laughs> I don't even know why I'm punishing him and not the Nazis. But if the Nuremberg trials taught us anything, is that we put up with the top Nazis if they help us get into space. Look, I don't have anything else to say. I, I'm tired of talking about the DOA. All right, Sid is number two. Oh, come on. Shut up. Um, but he's in the worst WrestleMania main event of all time. He's got to carry the COVID kid to a rematch at the Royal Rumble. And the six-man at King of the Ring is useless. Ugh. I hate that this year is his swan song in the company. Uh, Sid's also tied with Road Dogg and Billy Gunn, but I mentioned them. I chronicled their failures. It's done. And the worst uh, wrestler of the year, it's a tie again, but it's the Harris Brothers. And um, I wasn't going to talk about them, so I won't. Uh, they're tied with Mark Merrow. I think Merrow is probably one of the more disappointing guys the company's ever had, or at least he needs to be in the conversation because he starts the year with so much promise. But then he has to have that useless match with Leaf Cassidy and he destroys his knee. And then when he comes back, I like the character of the boxer, but the results just aren't there anymore. Then Butterbean kills him. Not a great year for the Mirrows. I just wanted to, oh, I love Butterbean trying to, I just wanted to ask the lady to have a good time, that's all. I don't know what the problem is. I just, you know, she's a beautiful woman. She's a beautiful woman, I just want to talk to her. All right, five best uh, wrestlers of the year. Number five, The Undertaker. Man, we don't see this dude on this side of the ledger very often here. Uh, you know, the Sid match aside, Taker starts here with a fun match against Vader at the Rumble. Part of the incredible Final Four match. We didn't even really get to talk about, right? Then he holds down the Ford as champion while we build everyone up in late 97. Uh, for You know, we're building everybody up to go into 97, 98. He's holding the Ford down as champion. Yeah, the matches with Mankind and Farouk aren't very good. But they're not garbage either. Then is inc incredible run. Vader at Canadian Stampede. Very good match. All-timer with uh, Brett at SummerSlam. The blood feud with Michaels. Everything's great. I really feel that this like year gave The Undertaker a new lease on life. Number four, Owen Hart. Like the rest, the rest of his year is so good that you almost forget he nearly ended the career of the biggest star of all time before it even got started. But Owen is always good. He dominates the intercontinental scene. He's in the tag scene, you know, and he makes both divisions more important. He's just a breath of fresh air as he dethrones a pre-People's Champion rock for the intercontinental. His run in the summer is great, and it, Stampede is a wonderful performance for him. And he's even got a sneaky fun match with Vader at one night only. I don't know. I kind of wish he'd been given the title match at the Degeneration X pay-per-view, because he might have jumped up a bit here. Owen Hart was my favorite wrestler for most of the 1990s. I mean, until this period, right? And I, Especially 94. And I always thought he was so cool, and I always wanted him to get his due. And I guess he kind of did in the main event in 94, but 1997 was the best for Owen. Like, he seemed like a big deal again. And I'm really happy I was able to experience it. Seeing him in the ring at the end of Stampede with his son in his arms is still one of my favorite scenes in all of wrestling. He was a great wrestler, but it seemed, and, and, and I think this is kind of proven true by everybody who knew him, it seemed it was more important for him to be a great father. And in many ways, that still kind of makes him a hero of mine. Number three. Shawn Michaels, sure, he lost his smile. But what he didn't lose was his ability to put on incredible matches every time out. Yeah, the Sid match wasn't great. But that's the only low point. And you could argue it's still a good moment because he wins the title in his hometown. 
King of the Ring match with Austin, criminally underrated. Just a fantastic sprint. Uh, lost to the annals of time. He's great as the guest ref at SummerSlam. Tremendous in the Taker feud. And to close the year, his matches with Brett and Ken Shamrock are both very good. Incredible heel work. He might have won any other year. Number two. So it's down to two guys, and one of them has to lose. And the one who loses, and it almost makes me sad, is number two is Bret Hart. And I give Bret Hart a lot of shit on a ton of podcasts. And look, while one might say he deserves it, one might also say I do it because I love Marcus and Pratt so much and angering people is my love language. You should ask my wife. I anger her almost every day. And sometimes I'll break into fits of laughter just thinking about how upset she'll get in a given situation. Like lately, I make a lot of noise at night, not on purpose, but I go downstairs and I always imagine myself falling down the stairs just because, you know, I'm stupid. But then I start laughing because the noise of me falling down the stairs would fucking elicit a rage in her that I have not seen in a long time. Anyway, how can you fault Brett's year here? Great performance at the Rumble. Great in the Final Four. Great goat match at Mania. Decent encounter at Revenge of Taker. Stampede. Main event of SummerSlam. And finally, a very good match with Shawn Michaels in which he taps to his own hold. The only thing that keeps him from number one, and I, it was just this, is the stuff with the fucking Patriot. Man, fuck Del Wilkes. Number one, Steve Austin. I mean, how could it not be, right? All the aforementioned stuff with Brett. A classic with Owen. A job match with Owen. But then he finished, like, I think what ends, because he doesn't have the lows of the Patriot. That's the big thing with Austin here, is he doesn't have those lows. Because he's got the same year as Brett. The Rumble is his, and, and he probably should get more credit for it than Brett. Final Four is his, the match of Brett at Mania, the match of Brett at, at um, Revenge of Taker. Then he's got the match of Taker at uh, Cold and Hell, which is fine. The King of the Ring match is great. He's in the 10-man. The match with Owen is not quite as good as the main event at SummerSlam. Then he's gone. But while he's gone, Brett's kind of getting shit on by the Patriot and Austin is there. And then Austin, Austin's hurt, excuse me. And then Austin finishes the year with a super fun outing against The Rock. Again, it's another thing we didn't get to talk about. Like he stunners D'Lo on top of the pickup. How could it not be great? It's Austin and The Rock. This is the year Austin became a star with a capital S. It was the most excited people have been about wrestling since the 1980s. This was Austin's year, the first of many. And he hit it out of the park with nearly every outing. Justin Pratt. 1997 is, my, is easily my favorite year in wrestling history. To me, this is the year that the ECW's influence reaches WWF and changes the, pa the path taken. You go from occupational gimmicks and squash matches to middle fingers and guys falling off cages. You also get my favorite feud of all time between the Hart Foundation and Austin slash America that had a dichotomy like no other with the crowd reacting differently both in Canada and the US. Um, I'm going to leave the 87 comment for next week. Uh, and thank you for the kind words, Justin. Um, I really appreciate it, and I, it's always touching. Uh, I'm also going to throw it to Ryan Gray. Uh, Aaron, thank you. That's all. Sad it's over. Yeah, me too. I'm sad. I'm happy, though. I'm getting to do it. Uh, Ryan says, I hope 97 wins. Oh, fuck. <laughs> God, I like... Why? Why Why does it have to be this way? Uh, I hope 97 wins. It really is a great year. Rewatched it, including Raws recently. Oh, that must have been cool. I think if you add the Raws, it probably wins, right? It holds up so much better than anticipated. The character, great Bret Hart, great Shawn Michaels in the start of the X, the Rise of Stone Cold, the Rise of the Rock, the Nation Rules. Mick Foley slowly starts to earn his upper card mid-card guy. The transition of Undertaker to Kane is awesome. Just based off those characters and the risk-taking of the attitude before the actual Airitude area is why 1987 is top two. 
in the brackets, hopefully number one. I didn't even mention the sneaky long list of five-star matches. I've got three. Ryan, I want to know how many you have, but thank you for all your support. Guys, it's hard to disagree with Ryan. It's hard to disagree with Pratt. It's hard to disagree with everybody who wanted this to be number one. I think it's just hurt by a couple of things, and what does finish number one, well, we'll get to it. But I love it, obviously, since 1997 is second on my list. I was going through some old pictures last night, and I stumbled across a party I went to at a friend's house uh, that was following my high school graduation in June of 1997. I would say from 1992 on, I was embarrassed to be a wrestling fan. Not that I was personally embarrassed, right? But, you know, you get made fun of if you told people, like, you know, I went to see a show, Razor Ramon fought Jeff Jarrett, I bought a Razor Ramon Razor. Like, it wasn't the cool thing to do. But lo and behold, in these pictures, there I am, wearing an Austin 316 shirt, proudly. I'm not even sure where I would have gotten it. I, maybe I went to a house show in June or something. Anyways, I, I don't remember being ostracized about it at all. Wrestling was becoming cool again. Austin was killing it. DX was being born. The Rock was checking his pager, and Bret Hart had a banner year. Leaving 1997, I was left with a sense of, like, how can you let Bret Hart go after this? You know, and now that I'm talking through it too, because he deserves so much better. 1997 was also one of those years where you felt vindicated to be a fan. Like you stuck through the shit and now you're being rewarded with some of the best programming the company had ever produced. It was exciting again and it reminded us why we love this sport so much. Next time on The Year That Was, number one, no hints, you know what it is. You've been paying attention. I'll break down the number one pay-per-view year of all time and close the book on this project. Well, until I have to drag the lifeless husk of 2021 out of the barn and put it out of its misery. See you then. Think you can tell me what to do? You know who you're talking to?